morning, Missio. How's everybody doing today? Yeah? Good. Good. I am grateful that uh, it's not too hot in here. And I am grateful, uh, yeah, just to be together to worship. If you're a guest with us and you're in this space this morning, welcome. So glad that you're here. And if you're joining us online, uh, thanks for inviting us into your home. It's a privilege to, to be together. Um, yeah, my name is Dominic, and I'm the lead pastor, and I'm grateful that I get to bring the word this morning. Um, I want to start just by sharing a, a quick story. I have, I have a good friend named John. Some of you might know him, his wife, Hannah. Uh, they're part of our community. And in May, I was sitting down and having lunch with John. It was just a real privilege to talk, to catch up, and to just hear what's going on in life. And John was sharing with me um, about one of his, his siblings. Uh, his sister is not a follower of Jesus, neither is the family. And John has this little nephew that he absolutely adores and loves. And the more and more uh, that he spends time with him, the more and more his heart is just growing and desiring that his nephew would, would come to know Jesus. Um, and he wants to be a part of that through prayer and through being present and being intentional in those ways. And so John was sharing with me that he was up visiting his family and um, they're sitting down to have dinner to celebrate the nephew's birthday. And he said, it was kind of out of the blue. I don't know my sister said, hey, would you pray to bless the meal and to pray a birthday blessing over my son? And John, for a moment, was taken aback by it because he's like, this is not normal. This is unusual. This is out of the blue. She's not a follower of Jesus, nor is the family. But he kept his composure. I think he kind of gave a glance to his wife and was like, okay, here I go. And so he bows his head. He prays a blessing over his nephew. And he said, as he's telling me this story, like his tears are kind of welling up with eyes a little bit because it was just such a beautiful moment. And, and again, celebrating kind of this win of this reality that here's John and Hannah and they've just been living quiet, faithful, but unashamed lives for Jesus in front of their family. And in that moment, it was just a chance that they, they were kind of going, whoa, Lord, like you're actually at work. Like when your people live faithful lives in front of the non-believing world, there's actually a way that there's fruit that is born through that. That there's a way that we are invited then actually to speak at times because we've earned trust with these people through just living lives that are faithful and humble, but again, unashamed of who you are. And this morning, I want to talk more about that. I want to talk about what it looks like for us to be a church that is marked by hospitality so that more and more of those opportunities become present for us as disciples and followers of Jesus. If you were here a few weeks ago, uh, Vicky kicked off this series that we're calling Biblical Hospitality, Experiencing the Welcome of Jesus. And Vicky opened us up by talking about the heart of hospitality and really helping us to see that in Scripture, when you talk about hospitality, it's kind of countercultural in terms of this. Today, we talk about hospitality, and the first thing many of you probably think of is Martha Stewart, or the latest Joanna Gaines decor at Target, or you think of Instagram, or you think of something like that. Not that any of those things are wrong, but often those things are based upon presentation and performance and appearance. But biblical hospitality, the goal is not either of those. The goal is relationship. And so Vicky reminded us of that. And then Joel, last week, if you're here, he reminded us of the source of hospitality, that it's, it's God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his heart of hospitality was shown even in the act of creation. And everything that God did in that process of creation was a heart, was, was a display of his heart of hospitality and welcome towards humanity. And then Joel opened up the scriptures with us and looked in the New Testament where Jesus came and he was the embodiment of that hospitality and all of his interactions with everyone his heart was to display the heart of God the Father, who is the origin of hospitality. This morning, what I want to look at and talk about, as I said earlier, is that Scripture actually assumes that we then, as Christians, as disciples and followers of Jesus, that we are marked by hospitality. And being marked by hospitality, I believe, is this. It's having a posture of response that is the embodiment of the love of Jesus to others. It's a posture of response that is the embodiment of the love of Jesus to others. And I want to look at a couple passages in Scripture that are going to help us to think about this. 
And it's going to be helpful as we talk about being marked by hospitality to be thinking about this kind of in concentric circles, if you will. Because what Scripture does, again, is it assumes that we are marked by hospitality first and foremost to one another inside the church, and then secondly to all others, to everyone else that we will encounter in our lives. We've been talking uh, often about 1 Peter 4.9. I believe Vicki referenced this verse and Joel did as well. And 1 Peter 4.9 says this, it says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, to kick us off this morning, I want to read this verse in its context within four verses that, are, that Peter wrote around it in order to uh, give us again a picture and a reminder of what this looks like, that we're called to be marked by hospitality to one another first and foremost, and then to the outside world. And so in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 7, it says this. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now it's interesting because when you read these passages, or excuse me, these verses in this passage, it almost seems like Peter is just kind of throwing together these random things. Above all else, love one another. Do it earnestly for the sake of your prayers. Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. But I want to look at the, the definition of hospitality for a moment here and see if we can connect this a little bit together. If you might remember from last week, Joel put up uh, the, the Greek definition of hospitality, or the Greek word that is, that is shown here, and it's philoxenos. And it basically is made up of two other words. It's phylos or philos, which is friendly love. It's, it's the word that you often read of, of beloved or when someone is dear, that's, that's, the, that's this friendly love. And then xenos, which is the alien or stranger or foreigner. And Joel reminded us last week that, yeah, xenophobia, right? That's that same word. It's, it's the fear of a stranger, the fear of foreigners. But when you look at the Greek word made up of those two, this dear, befriendly love and, and strangers, it's philoxenos, and it means love of strangers or loving the stranger. And so when we think about that, I want to re- go back and look at these verses again and, and connect something here for us. Because in verse 8, Peter writes and he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. So this call to love, why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now his next sentence, show hospitality to another without grumbling. Now, thinking about hospitality being the love of another, the love of a stranger, and to do that without grumbling, Peter is connecting here that what it looks like to actually love and to love in a way that covers over a multitude of sins. It's to have this posture of response to others that, is, that calls them as dear, that calls them as beloved, even if they've wronged us, even if there's been things that have harmed us. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. These verses aren't disconnected, as it might appear because of the different words it uses, but they're all very connected, that love actually is friendly hospitality, and friendly hospitality is an act of serving one another according to the grace that God has given us. And Peter's going to go on and talk more about that. But what Peter's setting up here is this framework that we see all throughout Scripture when it talks about hospitality, is that hospitality is an act of love. And so to say that we're to be marked by hospitality, what I want you to hear this morning is actually that we're to be marked by love. And I want to talk specifically about what that looks like. Because again, it's to be marked by love first and foremost within the church to one another, and then secondly, outside to the rest of the world. Paul writes something similar in Romans 12. I want to read those verses for you as well. Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. And Paul is writing about what it means to, this is living as with the true marks of a Christian. And he says, let love, again, starting with love, be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
That's basically the same word, hospitality, except he's phrasing it differently. Brotherly affection, love one another, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, this framework that it's the beginning is love and the end is actually love, brotherly love, and everything in between. They're not disconnected, but they're all contained within, again, this call to have this posture of response to people that is the embodiment of the love of Jesus Christ himself. First and foremost, again, to one another within the church and then to all those that we encounter. And here's something for us to consider, though. That as we begin with one another, loving one another inside the walls, and Vicky talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to speak much to it today. But what we're called then to is have that posture of mutual welcome together here, and then we're called to have that to one another outside of the church, to the stranger. See, because by definition, true hospitality is not hospitality unless it is expressed toward the outsider and toward the stranger, toward the other. If you think about the root of the word, the etymology of the word that's made up of this brotherly love for the stranger, for the other, Scripture would actually propose to us that we're not showing true hospitality if we're just doing it within these walls. True hospitality is showing it to the outsider, to the stranger, and welcoming them in the way that Christ has welcomed us. By definition, it means we're responding with loving welcome to those who are different from us across all sorts of demographics and strategies excuse me, strategies that the world puts in front of us. So I want to talk specifically about how do we do that and why do we do that. In order to do that, I want to, um, I, I was reading through a book recently um, by Gordon T. Smith. The book is called Wisdom from Babylon. It's leadership for the church in a secular age. And I want to talk about a number of things that he talks about here because I think it's helpful for us to think about what does biblical hospitality look like for us practically in our day and in our age. In, in, in this book, what, um, uh, what Gordon Smith is doing is he's, he's giving us a framework to talk about, honestly, the fact that we, we are living in a secular age. And he's defining a secular age according to Charles Taylor's work, which is called a secular age. And, and basically in a secular age, it's this. It's the reality that the religious voice or the Christian voice is now just one voice among many at the table. It's no longer the privileged or the center voice. Actually, we're, we're the minority voice. Does, does that kind of make sense to everybody? And, and I see people just nodding their head. Like, we, we feel that. We know that. We're, we're not living in the times that we used to. It, it's not, no longer the Christian voice as central. We are actually now a minority, marginalized voice. And so Taylor's talking about what does that look like, defining a secular age. And Gordon Smith is looking at what does it look like then to be faithful as followers of Jesus in these days and in these times. See, that the secular voice is the voice that says there's, there's no transcendent reality. That the only true thing is, is the material world. What matters is this material world. It's what I can taste, what I can see, what I can touch, what I can feel. This is what life is all about, and this is what is most important. These are the undergirding marks of the voice and the way of the secular age. And these are the times that we're living in. And so in the midst of this, how do we live marked by hospitality if that's what Scripture is calling us to as disciples of Jesus? Taylor will say this, that there's, not Taylor, but Gordon T. Smith will say this. He'll say that there's a, one, cert, one key issue that he's trying to address with his work with his book. And it's what does it look like to be the church and maintain a distinctive Christian identity in the middle of, of Babylon? Maybe we could say in the middle of, of Portland or wherever it is that, that you live. And in his book, what he does, he spends first whole half of his book to, to lay out for us four responses to, to secularity. Because we are living in a secular age, and we all are called to be Christians who live as a distinct 
community among the world that we're living in. And so how do we respond? What do we do? And so he gives us four responses to secularity. The first one is this. The first one is we just go along to get along. He's saying this option just basically means we allow people to be fully a part of the secular world six days a week when I'm outside of the home and outside the church, but then I enter into religious life when I'm in my home or when I'm among the community of believers. And here, religion is seen really as private and it's seen as personal. It's my own personal thing. Uh, I, ha- I hold it within my home. Again, I hold it among the community of believers. But other six days a week when I'm with the world, I just go along to get along. If the world's doing it, I'm doing it because that's okay. That's what I can do. That's what's most comfortable and easiest. He's saying that's, that's option one. The second option is the monastic response or the monastic life. And as I say that, you probably have a picture and understanding. I probably don't need to say too much about it. But this option calls for complete retreat. It's a movement away from the public sphere and into isolated communities that try to engage with the secular world as little as possible. So again, religion and this this life with Jesus, it's private, it's personal, it's communal, but only with those who are also doing this with me. And so it's moving away from the world because I don't want to be tainted by the world and I don't think I'm actually called to have redemptive influence in it except from a distance by prayer. And so I'm just going to back up and do this monastic life. The third posture is the culture wars. (laughs) And unfortunately, this has been like the darling of the evangelical church for far too long. This option calls for wars against secularism and a restoration of Christian values as national values. And again, I think unfortunately we're seeing this play out right in front of our very eyes. That the call is to say we need to have every political agenda and everything aligned with faith and that is going to be the way that we restore and interact. And, I, and it's, it does what exactly what the title says. It's creating wars, wars of culture, where it's breeding greater division, greater separation, and it's making it harder and harder for those who want to follow Jesus faithfully because of what we see being played out or what people see being played out on the big screen in front of them and not being able to nuance and understand, have personal relationships and conversations. And so the fourth thing that, that um, Gordon Smith rep- or says is an option is a faithful presence. And in this option, which is the option that he would encourage us and which I believe Jesus encourages us into, a faithful presence is this. It's, it's the final option And it's where believers simply continue to live public and faithful lives devoted to Jesus. We engage with the secular world, we work within it, but we're not developing the same telos as the world. That's the word that Smith uses, telos, meaning the same end goal. And so my call is to be distinct as a follower of Jesus, to be in this world, but to not be of it. My faith, though, is not just this personal, private thing that I hide. My faith is part of who I am because it's the love of Jesus that is my greatest identity. And I live that out with courage. I live that out with humility. I live that out faithfully, sometimes quietly, sometimes speaking up as I have chance and opportunity. But this is my call to live a public and faithful life devoted to Jesus. And that this is to be coupled with being marked by hospitality. In many ways, this is what Jesus prayed for. If you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, when Jesus prayed and he said, Lord, I'm leaving the world now. I'm returning to you. And I'm praying for those who are remaining in the world. And I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you be with them and you keep them safe in a sense. You keep them in your love in this world. This was Jesus' call. This was Jesus' very prayer for us, was to be this faithful presence living in the world, but not of it. To be an an alternative or alternate community to the broader community that we are living within. And Smith goes on to define what he believes are three core foundations 
of what a faithful alternate community looks like. And I want to talk about this and then tie it back to this theme of biblical hospitality, living and embodying the presence of Jesus. Gordon Smith says, a faithful or alternate community or an individual is a liturgical community, first and foremost, meaning a community of worship. And what does he mean by that? We, we practice and embody worship that draws us into the transcendent sphere of reality. Remember, the, 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 the secular frame says there is nothing transcendent. It's only what is imminent. It's everything that is here. It's the material world. Again, what I can touch, taste, see, that is reality. There is no transcendent reality. And so when we gather as an alternate community, a faithful community, as an alternate presence in the world, first and foremost, we're to be a liturgical community that engages in worship. And again, it's, it's worship that draws us into and reminds us of the transcendent reality that is actually the greatest and truest reality. It calls us into remembering the resurrected Christ. It calls us into life in the kingdom of God in a way that we understand that yes, we are called to live in this world. We are embodied souls. But the greatest reality is that one day the king is going to return. And we live and we worship in a way that is both engaging in lament because we look at the brokenness of this material world and the spiritual world, but it's also prophetic because again, we are calling forward the joy that is to come when Christ returns. The second mark of a core foundation of a faithful alternate community is that it's a catechetical community, just meaning a catechesis, or it's a, it's a teaching and a learning community, meaning it's a community that is focused on the discipleship of Jesus. It's focused on learning together the ways, the words, and the works of Jesus. And in particular, we're talking here about the work of Jesus in hospitality. And thirdly, it's a missional community, meaning this, it's a community of witness, but not just where some are witnesses, but where everybody within the community understands that as a disciple of Jesus, I am called to go forth and make a disciple of Jesus. That all of us are empowered through worship, through teaching, to actually live on mission with Jesus in my day-to-day -day life. Everywhere I am, everywhere I go, Christ is with me, and he is at work in this world, and I get to partner with him in that. Gordon Smith says these are the marks of a faithful alternate community or a faithful disciple of Jesus in this world. And at the very last chapter of his book, after defining secularism, after defining the options, after defining and encouraging us in these alternate practices, he ties it all in to hospitality. And what he says there is that hospitality is actually foundational and fundamental to all of these practices and purposes. Why? Because hospitality is part of the very heart of God and thus one of the hallmarks of the reign of God in our world. Hospitality is part of the very heart of God and thus one of the hallmarks of the reign of God in our world. Reminding us that if we are to be a liturgical worshiping community, a catechetical teaching community, a missional community that's living on mission for the witness of the gospel in the world, he's reminding us that honestly, if we go out into a secular world that's viewing everything through a secular frame, and if we speak about the gospel, but there's no hospitality, no welcome, no love, no brotherly belovedness associated with it, it's going to fall on deaf ears. It's going to come up completely empty. Why? Because we're living in a society that's pluralistic and it's secular and everything is about division. And if we stand up there and just to speak something without first and foremost the hospitality and the welcome, the love of Jesus, He's saying it's just going to reinforce the things being played out on the big screen. But what we're called to is to remember that hospitality is a posture 
of response to those who are around us, and it's a posture to embody the love of Jesus. We see Jesus constantly embodying this. We've looked at it in the last few weeks that we could go through the New Testament, every single encounter of Jesus, and what he does first and foremost is the embodiment of this posture of welcome to invite people into his presence. And people felt at home with Jesus. They felt safe with Jesus. They felt welcomed into his presence. And that gave him the ability to then speak the, the, the transcendent truth, the transcendent reality into their lives as they were living, even in their time in a sense, in an imminent secular frame. I want to read for you a passage in, in Leviticus um, real quick that as I was reading through for this series, the staff and I, or the teaching team and I have been reading just different passages, different things on hospitality. And one of the things that, that really struck me was this passage here, here in Leviticus. And if you're familiar with the scripture at all, Leviticus is, um, you know, after the, the people came out of the Exodus, they were given the Ten Commandments, and then they're called into this journey. And in this journey, they kind of get lost and confused, and they wander for a bit. This is kind of just my edit of it. And so God gives them the law again, and then he has to expound on it. And Leviticus is basically the expounding of the law that he's giving to the people. And in particular, chapter 19, in some regards, is an expounding on the Ten Commandments. And in verse 33 and 34, God says this to his people as he's instructing them how to live in this land as they're making their way towards the place that he's called them to be. God says this to Israel. He says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, if you're tracking with us these last few weeks about what hospitality is and even the, the Greek definition of it and what it means, we almost could simplify these two verses of, of God the Father speaking to the people of Israel with one word or two words. Show hospitality. Right? Love the stranger. Welcome them and treat them the same way that you treat yourself. Treat them the same way that you treat one another. This is God's heart revealed and it's the hallmark of one of the realities that God is actually still reigning and ruling in this world. When you and I live with the same posture towards the world around us, first to one another, and then to the world around us. If we flip to the New Testament, we see this all throughout the letters, all throughout the epistles. Paul is writing, Peter's writing, constantly they're addressing to the Jews and to the Gentiles. They're saying to one another, look, treat one another now with brotherly love. And if you think about it today, what does it mean for us living in a day and in a time what does it look like to show brotherly love across social boundaries, across ethnic and racial boundaries, across ideological differences? Literally, again, this is the definition of hospitality, showing friendly love to people with whom we differ on substantive matters. How do we enter into that space? How do we enter into people's lives? How do we enter into work, into our neighborhood, anywhere we are, knowing that as I step into that space as a believer of Jesus, I'm entering in with a different frame, a different lens than the secular frame. And how do I enter in in such a way that though I have a difference with people on very substantive matters, how do I step in? Smith is saying it's by looking at the life of Jesus and realizing that it's to live and to embody a life of hospitality to embody the love and the welcome of Jesus in every sphere that we're called. And to remember that by definition, it's not true hospitality unless we're actually welcoming, some, welcoming someone who is utterly different than I am. Just to show hospitality to those who are exactly the same on, as me 
is not true hospitality by definition. So how do we do this? What, 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 are, we, what are the steps practically? That's where I really wanted to go today. I want to remind you this. I want to look at another verse in, in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? See, what we need to remember first and foremost is that our empowerment and our purpose, our impetus for loving and being hospitable is because of the love and the welcome of Jesus that we first and foremost have received. So you and I are no longer estranged from God. But at some point, we were. And what God did, again, was to approach us with a heart of hospitality. God stepped towards us in Christ Jesus. God entered into the world, put on human flesh. He came close to us, those who were estranged from him, those who were utterly different from him. And what he did was he loved us back into relationship with himself. He restored us and reconciled us back into relationship with himself through love, through welcome, through making it so that we are no longer strangers, no longer enemies, the word even uses here, but now we are reconciled and we share in life with him. That this is, our, again, our impetus for, for hospitality. It's the grace of God that's been given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus is now the grace that we get to live in and show to others. I love Dorothy Bass. She's a practical theologian, author, and Christian historian. Dorothy Bass writes this. She says, Our society at large needs to experience us and see us not as judges and critics in an adversarial posture, but those with open hands and welcome hearts. See, when Christ Jesus entered into this world, he did not enter in with an adversarial posture to me and my sin. He didn't enter in with an adversarial posture to me and my like aloofness towards him. When Jesus Christ stepped into this world, he stepped in with a posture not to judge and not to be a critic of me, but with open hands and an open heart. He welcomed me in, and yes, once he did that, then he did speak truth in love. He did reveal grace and truth into my areas of sin, into my areas of brokenness. But his first posture towards me was not to come as an adversary. You tracking with me? Christ Jesus came with a posture of hospitality, of brotherly love towards me, even though I was his other. And so given this, Gordon Smith invites us to do, live out three movements of hospitality that I believe we see Jesus model all throughout the New Testament. Again, we've looked at some of these in the, in the past weeks. And these, these are the three movements. First and foremost, it's this. We welcome the other. We receive others into our world, and we graciously enter into the world of others. We invite people into our space, or we step into others' space. I invite them to a meal to my house, and I pray. Or I get invited into someone else's house, and if they invite me to pray, I'm not shocked by it. I'm not, I might be surprised by it, but I humbly say, okay, I will pray for my nephew. Although in normally in this home, I understand you're normally not following Jesus. I don't make a big deal out of it. I step into it and graciously I engage. I meet them where they are on their turf. And I don't demand that they change or become like me in order to be accepted or received in my presence. Again, we see Jesus do that all the time. He steps into the presence of the woman at the well. He leads with grace. He listens to her story. He understands what's going on. He doesn't require her to change in that moment to be in his presence as everybody else in her culture did. He steps in and he welcomed her on her turf, on her ground, and he graciously entered into her world. We can look at story after story of Jesus engaging that way. Second, what we do is we ensure that the other feels safe 
in our presence. We don't create awkwardness. Again, we don't shame them. We don't bully them. Rather, what we do is we're deliberate in making them feel safe in our presence. Again, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus that we looked at a few weeks ago, Peter coming off the shore to meet with Jesus. Again, there was no, Peter, hey, you denied me three times, so now what's up? No, 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 no. And Jesus said, Peter, come and eat. I see that you've been fishing and you've caught nothing. Not to shame you, I, I bring that to your attention. But here, come with me. And he calls him with grace. He ensures that Peter felt safe in his presence, and not just Peter, but all of his boys to come and to hang out, to be with Jesus. And third, we listen to the other with empathetic listening. Again, attentive to their experience, attentive to their story, attentive to their way of seeing themselves in their world, even if we know that there is a transcendent alternate reality and world to which we are all called to live, when we see that they are stuck, trapped in a sense, just in the imminent frame, the secular frame, we still want to listen. And we find out how are they viewing themselves and how are they viewing this world. That opens up the door for us to be able to then speak in ways that, that can invite them to see and experience the reality of Jesus. That listening is a central mode of the hospitality that we see in Jesus. One of the things Joel and I were dialoguing about is as we begin reading through passages and looking at Christ and his hospitality in the New Testament is going, man, Jesus asked almost more questions than he made statements. In his interaction with people, Jesus was constantly asking questions. And as he asked these questions, then what did he do? He listened. And it was a way, again, of inviting people to see an alternate reality. It's engaging them, meeting them on the earth, making them feel safe, making them feel welcome. And here's the final thing, the fourth and final movement, which I would say almost might be the first. It would be to engage in the contemplative life that allows you and I to constantly be engaged in remembering and hearing the gospel for ourselves so that we can go out and proclaim it to others. Because the reality is I can only extend hospitality to this world if I myself am first receiving hospitality from the Lord. Remember, that's my empowerment. That's my capability. That's my initiative. Is the hospitality that Christ has given to me is the hospitality that I can give to others. I appreciate Gordon Smith saying it this way. He said, the contemplative life is non-negotiable. It is truly the only way that we can navigate an age of anxiety such that, as noted already, we personally behold Christ with the eyes of our hearts and hear Christ assure us that we are loved and that we do not need to be afraid. See, the secular age, it is an anxious age. The secular society and system, it is a society and a system of anxiety. We're surrounded by it. All the studies are saying it. All the, everything is showing it. We talked about it pretty clearly a few, a few weeks ago. The secular age is, a, is, a, is an age of anxiety. And so he's saying, how do we operate in that as those, again, who know an alternate reality? First and foremost, we must be reminded and engaged in the life of contemplative remembering the love that God has given to us. It's, it's non-negotiable. I can't love another if I myself am first not receiving love from Jesus. And for the church, for us as individual disciples, to be an alternate community, we have to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of an anxious system. That's who Jesus was. He was a non-anxious presence in the midst of an anxious system. One last scripture I want to read for you, and I want to spend time to consider this together. As I was reading through this and just thinking and, and distilling this down, thinking about what is the mark of, of hospitality, the mark that we are called to, to carry, 
I kept thinking, I couldn't help but think of um, John's words in, in the letter of 1 John 4. When he writes and he says this statement in 1 John 4.19 where he says, we love because he first loved us. But I, I want to read this section to you because it's part of the application I want to call us to this week. I want to finish with this. John writes and he says, beloved. Again, that word should be familiar to you. That's that brotherly love. That's, that's John looking at the whole community and thinking of this brotherly love. Extended. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Church, I've been praying this week that we would be marked by hospitality, that we would be marked by the love of Jesus, and that every space that we open up together, there would be a hospitality extended to one another that is the love that, and hospitality that we are first receiving from Christ. And that when each of us steps out of this space, and you step into your neighborhood, we step into work, we step into school, wherever we step, again, that we'd be stepping in there knowing that we are fiercely and deeply, fully and wholly and perfectly loved by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, embodied and empowered by His Spirit, and we can step in and embody love. And to that end, I want to give you two applications today. First would be similar to the, one of the applications from last week. Would you embrace God's hospitality towards you this week? And I want to make that real, real practical. Would you this week, would you take in three times in this week and say, I'm going to sit and meditate or contemplate because it's not negotiable if we're going to live life as faithful followers of Jesus. Would you contemplate three times this week on this passage that we just read together? 1 John 4, 7 to 21. Would you take 10 minutes three times this week? Would you read it? And would you consider how is God inviting you into his love today? How is he inviting you back into fearless and shameless union with himself? Would you do that as an act of faithfulness and a step to say, yes, I want to learn how to embody the love of God more fully and live out his hospitality? Would you do that this week? And then secondly, again, making this really practical, would you practice hospitality? Would you extend an invitation to someone that is currently outside of the church body Someone that is currently estranged, if you will, from God. 
then would you invite them to connect over a meal or over a drink? doesn't mean that you have to make that connection within this week, but would you extend that invitation within this week to say, hey, would you, love, would you come? Would you sit? And would we put into practice together these three steps of, of welcome, of making others feel safe, and listening to their story? And here's the thing. Hospitality is not pragmatic. I'm not saying do that second point so that you go, hey, I'm going to call someone to hospitality, and then they're going to buy the product that I'm selling. No, 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 no. Hospitality is an act of obedience in itself. It's an act of faithfulness in and of itself that I am hospitable because Christ Jesus is hospitable to me. You tracking with me? Does that make sense? But if we as a church would would embrace these steps this week, I I would be grateful. Church, let me pray and then we're going to have communion and we're going to worship. Father God, I thank you this morning for who you are. I thank you and praise you that you are the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you are a God who is faithful to a thousand generations, and that, God, you extend forgiveness to a thousand generations. Thank you, God, that your heart is a heart of hospitality towards us. It is a heart of welcome. And Jesus, thank you for coming and embodying the welcoming, pursuing love of God for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead and guide us into that truth and that reality this week, that it would transform us, that it would change us, that it would heal us, And that, Lord, that then you would empower us to go out into this world and to love and to welcome people the way that you have loved and welcomed us. God, would we live faithfully in this world and not be of it? Lord, give us the courage to confess, repent of the things in your presence that need to be called out as sin, the way that you call them that. And would you send us out in your love, restored and repaired to enter into this world, to love and to serve to be hospitable, to be gentle, to be kind, to listen. Lord, it's not natural for me to listen empathetically the way that you do to me. But would you empower me? Would you empower us as a community to listen and be present with people without agenda other than to love them in order that they would know and experience that they are seen, that they are valued, that they are loved by you, their creator. And Jesus, give us courage to live as alternate people, alternate community that worships you, that is faithful to learn and teach your your ways, your words, and your works. And that lives on mission with you in this world. God, we, we love you today because you have loved us first. And we thank you for that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion now before we worship. And as we do that, I want to invite you to this table to take communion. Uh, What you see on the table in front of you is bread, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and cups, which contain juice, which represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And I'd remind you this morning that, yeah, this, this table, as we read in every single one of those passages, is the embodiment of the love of God, the, the hospitality of God, welcoming us into his presence, welcoming us into his family, welcoming us into new life and new purpose, not because of what we have done, but all because of what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I welcome you to receive the body and the blood. Before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me this prayer of communal confession. Would you do that? And so Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. 
For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life. To the glory of your name.